Hello, good evening, and welcome to the podcast. You're listening to Ian Seven's Sleep Hour, Episode One, Part One, Dropping Off. I am Ian, and this is a podcast about sleep, dreams, and the people who love them both. It's 3.04am here now. Thank you for joining me and inviting me to join you in the waning moments of your consciousness. I hope you're warm, comfortable, quiet and at rest, sitting in a chair that cradles your form or lying on a bed that envelops you ready to pass beyond the waking world to the place where dreams are made. There are no loud or coarse sounds in this podcast. The volume will be consistent. So if you set your playback device to a comfortable level based on my voice as you hear it now, perhaps you might consider setting it just on the quiet end of what is clearly audible, then you can rest in the knowledge that the rest of the podcast will not disturb you. This is the official podcast of the Dream Space Fellowship and is supported by other nocturnal enterprises to whom we are eternally grateful. This week's Sleep Sheep are provided by Mr. Di Thomas, his wife Keris, and their daughters Megan and Tilly of Flandover Farm, Merionethshire, a farm of 229 acres on the slopes of hills bordering the Snowdonia National Park. The sheep are Torwen badger-faced black mountains. The less common black variety of the hardy badger-face upland breed. They are recognisable by their patterned black and white faces, black coat and white patches on the belly and legs. Diochenvar to the Thomas family for the loan of their sheep this week. From their flock of 197, this week's episode is brought to you by sheep number 131, 132, 133, 134, 135, 100 and 36 and 137. Dreams this week have a higher likelihood of featuring swimming, particularly those beginning with flight. Underground dens will be less effective as hiding places than domestic cupboards, and unrequited lovers are prone to transform into childhood teachers. You may wish to take 
suitable precautions accordingly. The Sleep Hour podcast has six parts. Still to come, in Something Interesting Explained in a Monotone, we'll be learning about double-entry bookkeeping and its impact on both Renaissance Italy and the modern world. Five chords played slowly on a synthesizer will include a D minor seventh with a flattened fifth. And Dream With Me of Nearby Worlds will visit the Hundred Acre Gardens of Port Lorenz. First, it is time to relax. Part 2. Step-by-step instructions for lying still. The secret word is ostrich. Welcome to our guided relaxation session. Today's guided relaxation will focus on your breathing. Position yourself so you are at your most comfortable. You will need to sit or lie still for the next 10 minutes. So arrange your body now to make it the most pleasurable possible experience. If you are lying, you might consider lying flat on your back with your arms relaxed by your sides and your head supported by a soft pillow. If you are sitting, try to recline slightly so you no longer have to support your head on your neck. You may want to place your hands flat on your thighs or by your side. Begin by breathing deeply with your mouth slightly open. Breathe normally as I guide you. As you hear each part of the instruction, incorporate it into your breathing cycle. You don't need to pause to hear what I'll say next or try to match your breathing to the pace of my words. Let my voice come to you in its own time. Breathe in and out. When we inhale, the muscle in our stomach pulls down and we draw in only a fraction of the air our lungs can hold. Breathe in past that point and keep inhaling until you feel your chest rise. On your next in-breath, hold for a count of three. One one thousand, two one thousand, three one thousand, one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, tick, tock. However feels most natural to count the passing time. Then exhale. Breathe out naturally and gently, neither pushing the air out nor holding it in longer than you need. As you relax, the air will leave your body at its own pace. When all the breath is gone, and your chest has returned to rest, pause for a brief moment. A count of two. 
one one thousand, two one thousand, one Mississippi, two Mississippi, tick, tock. Let your body tell you when it needs to begin the next breath. It might just be a second, just one one thousand, one Mississippi. It may be longer. Trust your chest to begin to rise at the right time. Continue to breathe this way, but let your attention move from your lungs and your chest, the size and shape and speed of your breathing, to the sensation of air moving across your lips and your tongue. You may also feel a slight sensation of air moving across your nostrils and through the passages of your nose. Tune into the sensation ever more closely. Become more and more sensitive. Feel how far back the nerve endings go. Can you feel the air past the back of your throat on its way deep into your body to enrich you and bring you life? Breathe this way for a time, deeply, sensitively, slowly, in a state of profound relaxation. And as you continue to breathe, bring your focus to your hand, the hand you write with, your right hand or your left hand. Touch your thumb gently against the pad of your first finger. Hold it there and notice the sensation. The sensation of the touch on both thumb and finger. And the subtle sense of each joint telling you where your fingers are. The shape and pose of your hand. We may not feel it as we feel touch, but we sense the position of our body without looking. We all have more than five senses. Now touch your middle finger in the same way. The pad of your finger against the pad of your thumb and notice the sensation, both the touch and the shape of your hand. Notice also the sensation of your first finger where your thumb was touching just a moment ago. Can you sense the shadow of the touch that was there? Breathe deeply. Bring your thumb to your third finger and rest it gently against the fingertip. Notice how the muscles at the base of your thumb are firmer, pulled further than before. If you relaxed totally, your thumb would naturally drift back towards your first finger. Keep it on your third for now and feel the sensation. It is rare to feel touch on this finger alone. Breathe. For a moment before you move on, bring your focus to your smallest finger. Feel the lack of touch as you slowly bring your thumb across to meet it. Let the expectation of sensation resolve 
as the tip of your little finger and your thumb meet. Now pass your thoughts back to each finger in turn, from your last finger where the tip of your thumb is resting, to your third finger, to your middle finger, to your first finger. Then lift and relax your thumb and let it return to your first finger again. Breathe deeply, holding each in-breath, one one thousand, two one thousand, three one thousand, and holding each out-breath, one Mississippi, two Mississippi. Breathe sensitively, feeling the air inflate your body. Breathe in slowly and breathe out naturally. Breathe in a state of profound relaxation. Hold your thumb against the tip of your forefinger as you inhale. Touch the fingertip of your middle finger as you hold the air in your lungs, allowing the oxygen to be absorbed and enrich your body. Move to your third finger as you begin to exhale. And when your chest has settled, hold your thumb against your little finger until you are ready to inhale again. Your first finger as you inhale until your chest rises. Your middle finger as you hold for a count of three. Your third finger as you relax and let the air leave your body. Your last finger, as you pause until your body begins to breathe again. Forefinger, breathe in. Middle finger, hold. Third finger, breathe out. Last finger, pause. Forefinger, middle finger, third finger last finger. Breathe in, hold, breathe out, pause. Breathe this way. Breathe deeply, sensitively, slowly, in a state of profound relaxation. Part three, five chords played slowly on a synthesizer. The secret word is vol.
Part four, something interesting, explained in a monotone. The secret word is iguana. Today we'll be talking about double entry bookkeeping. Imagine you're running a business. How are you going to keep track of your money? You're selling things, so you have a list of all the sales you've made. You have another list of all the things you've purchased. You have to keep track of when you've taken money to the bank, any loans you've taken out, any customers who owe you money, your bills, salaries, the money you have in the cash registers, sales tax you've collected for the government, and so on. And at some point, you'll need to work out how well you're doing. Is your business profitable? How much money is it worth? How long will it take to pay back a loan you need? Working all this out from all those separate lists is going to be rather difficult. This was the problem that double entry bookkeeping solved or helped to solve when it was invented in Renaissance Italy. At the birth of modern capitalism, when businesses were becoming increasingly financial and their financial processes were becoming increasingly sophisticated. It didn't remove the need to keep track of different categories of money, sales and loans and salaries and bills and so on, but it did unify them. This is how it works. Double entry bookkeeping is a record of all the transactions in a business. A transaction always has two components. The money comes from somewhere and it goes somewhere. That's the double in double entry bookkeeping. In this system, there is no such thing as just a sale, bringing money into the business. The transaction has to record where that money went. Was it cash that ended up in the register? An online payment that ended up in your PayPal account? A credit card payment that will show up in your bank. Money always goes somewhere. The basic inviolable rule of double entry bookkeeping is that each transaction must balance. Money received must be put somewhere. Money spent must come from somewhere. Think of these transactions as being run by a little financial gremlin. It collects money then puts it somewhere and always ends up empty-handed. The money coming into a transaction is called credit and the money going out is called debit. Historically, this has been written in two columns. The credit column is on the right and the debit column on the left. The financial gremlin is right-handed and greedy, snatching the money with its right hand then cautiously distributing it with its left. More recently, computers have taken over keeping track of all these records and two columns are only used for display. Inside the program, credit, money coming in, our gremlin's right hand is stored as positive numbers and debit, money going out, our gremlin's left hand is stored as negative. If you use two columns, they must add up to the same number. If you use positive and negative numbers, they must all add up to zero. Now, there is a curious crinkle here. Imagine the money from your customers 
is going directly into the bank. Your transactions will show your sales as positive, credits in the right column. But the money going into your bank will show as negative, debits in the left column. So if you have a lot of money in your bank, it will show up in your financial records as a big debit, a big negative number. That seems counterintuitive. A lot of money in the bank feels like it should be a positive thing. But this is in fact correct. It simply means that a lot of money has been put into the bank. And any money that is put anywhere is always negative. It's always a debit because it left our gremlin's left hand. When you take money out of the bank to spend on a comfortable new pillow, for example, that will show up in a transaction as a credit, a positive number in the right-hand column. In financial jargon, what I've called categories of money, or the lists I described at the start of this lecture, are really called accounts. Your bank account is one account, but so is your sales. That's your sales account. The money you've spent on electricity bills, well, that's your electricity bill account. They aren't physical accounts held with some bank. They're just for record keeping, like pigeonholes or file folders, a way to keep track of what the money is doing. Different companies keep track of different accounts. One company might have a single sales account. Another might have separate sales accounts for sales of beds and sales of duvets. A third might have separate sales accounts for each of its different stores. The complete list of accounts the company is using is called their chart of accounts. There's some commonalities, and in many countries, some accounts are required by law. But there's also variation. And it's not strictly a list of accounts, but a tree. Different sales accounts are like twigs on the sales branch. And the sales branch joins others merging into the income bough. Almost everywhere in the world, this tree of accounts has the same five trunks. These five trunks are grouped depending on whether money normally comes in or out of the accounts, or both, and in what order. An income account only gives you money. Your sales is a good example. When someone buys something from you, they don't normally expect to be repaid. Which is not to say that money can never go into any income account. Sometimes you need to give a customer their money back. You need to refund a sale and money goes in the opposite direction. But this is unusual. An income account normally gives you money. Similarly, an expense account is somewhere you spend money. Your electricity bill, for example. Both income and expense are one-way accounts. The next two have money going in both directions, but depend mostly on the order. An asset account is like a bank account, somewhere you put money that you can later go back and withdraw. The register in a shop is another example. 
but so is the payment period you offer a trusted customer. Money from a sale goes onto that customer's tab and you expect that you will receive money from them in another transaction later. A bank owes you your money. The customer owes you money. Even the register can be thought of owing you the money it contains. They are all assets. The opposite of an asset account is a liability account. Liability account gives you money, but will expect it back. Loan is a good example. Or one of your suppliers offering you payment terms. You get your widget now, but they will expect to be paid later. Liability account records money that you owe. The final type of account is the capital account, also called equity. It acts like a liability account, but doesn't need to be paid back. It has a special purpose for representing the total value of a company. If you start your company with 101 coins, the first transaction would be 101 coins coming from an equity account and going into the bank, or the register, or the shoebox, or wherever your business stores its money. If you make sure to remember the financial gremlin and make all transactions balance or add up to zero, then it is easy to remember how to deal with its accounts. Student accountants often spend time learning whether to credit or debit different types of account, but all this falls out quite naturally if you think of the gremlin and his ambidextrous shuffle. Five chords, reprise.
Part 5. Dream with me of nearby worlds. The secret word is narwhal. The guest ambience today is a campfire in a dense deciduous woodland on a late summer evening, sometime after midnight. We are sitting on the soft ground, reclining against fallen logs, the cool night air on our backs, our faces warmed by the fire, the embers turning deep red. As you drowse and listen to my voice, I invite you to dream with me of a nearby world. We can all share dreams. Listen as you drift into a state of meditative relaxation on the cusp of sleep. Relax and give your thoughts permission to ebb. Allow the words to flow over you, soaking into your mind as I take you on the journey. A visit to the Hundred Acre Gardens of Port Lorenz. Some people listen many times until the words and images are familiar enough to be part of them. Others find it easier to share dreams when dropping back off to sleep after waking in the night or when dozing on a lazy weekend morning. Whenever or wherever you are listening, let go your conscious mind and dream with me. Port Lorenz is a bustling old town on the shore of a natural inlet and harbour on the Black Mountain coast. The narrow, maze-like streets are filled with merchant shops, barrows and handcarts, selling goods from all over the world. Precious jewels, rare spices, exotic fashions and vivid dyes. Tall ships pass by the harbour walls each day at high tide to the tolling of the harbour bell, each one bringing new valuables and new curiosities. At the centre of the Crescent Inlet, the streets end at a cliff wall that rises high above the surrounding buildings. A thin stair is cut into the pale stone, winding back and forth across the face of the rock until it reaches the crenellated walls of the palace on top. There are some in the city who still remember the old duke, some who remember stories of his father and grandmother and the noble line that went back generation after generation, before it also passed, as all seemingly solid things pass into history. Where once only royalty trod, now all can climb the narrow road, looking down on the warren of the old city and the swaying masts of the ships bobbing gently at the dock. The gate is forged from black iron with thick bars like the boughs and branches of a great oak. Beaten out plates are skillfully tooled with veins and stems to resemble leaves and acorns, as if a living tree had been captured 
and moulded into ageless metal. The guard posts on either side are empty and we pass through the red brick arch and into the garden beyond. We come first to a curving avenue of tall trees with yellow-green leaves, each a vibrant scrap of colour glowing with sunlight, dancing in the breeze, shimmering above our heads. We pass between them, along a path of gravel that crunches underfoot, pausing to look up at stone plinths set every dozen yards in the midst of the path, capped with bronze globes. Engraved plaques label each with the name of a heavenly body, a light in the dark sky, a star, a planet, a moon, a bright point of the cosmos we made in reflective metal. At the end of the curving avenue, a box hedge arch spans the path. Each side of the opening, a conical shrub stands, its close-cropped, close-knitted, glossy dark leaves hiding branches and twigs from sight. We pass beneath the arch into an open space ringed with hedges. Groups of shrubs are clustered together, clipped and sculpted into the size and shape of exotic animals. Here, a family of elephants paws on the bank of a watering hole, their thick trunks and blanket ears shimmering as the wind catches their leaves. There, a pair of giraffes, taller than a house. There are rhinoceros and buffalo, lions and bears, a python asleep after a meal and a condor about to take to flight. A zoo of topiary creatures living out their arboreal lives. Beyond the animals, another arch breaks the hedge. A wooden sign is placed beside the opening, with tall letters painted white in an elegant hand. It reads, Maze. We leave the menagerie and step through this further opening and into the garden's central puzzle. The tall hedgerow walls seem to darken the sunlight, cool the air and quiet the sounds. As we pass through openings that seem obvious, we look back to see them almost hidden from the other side. As we twist and turn through its labyrinthine passages, we come from time to time upon small clearings with a bench and fountain for rest and refreshment. There are four exits to the maze, an iron gate to the east, a stone archway to the west, to the south a wooden bridge across a babbling brook. We arrive at last at the fourth exit, a flight of marble stairs that leads down into the earth. We follow a low passageway with circular vaulted ceilings decorated with mosaics assembled from coloured ceramic shards. At intervals along the walls are small recesses in which a gently hissing, flickering oil lamps crafted from polished brass. Between the alcoves, paintings are hung on the only vertical layer of the wall at waist height. The paintings show idyllic scenes of rolling countryside 
tree-clad mountains and distant snowy peaks. In some of the images, a group of riders on pure white horses gallop across the landscape, flowing blue clothes billowing behind them. Some wear dresses streaming back from their legs, others wear capes streaming back from their shoulders. Their faces are all hidden by broad blue hoods. The passage is long and the images encourage us to move slowly. At the end of the corridor is a simple wooden door. We walk out into a dense deciduous wood. Night has already fallen. In the distance through the trees a faint flickering light can be seen. We pick our way over fallen logs crusted in white mushrooms, creaking with the sound of the insects gnawing away inside. We can hear and smell the burning wood as we approach the fire. It is set in a ring of stones in the centre of a small clearing. As we enter its halo of light, a group of fellow travellers turn to greet us. They are sitting, relaxed, on the soft ground, reclining against fallen logs. The warmth and light of the fire's fading embers animate faces in flickering red. There is plenty of room for us to join the group and share our experiences, share stories of the places we have been and tales of the nearby waking world that is our home. Many have visited here before. Some you might recognise. Some you will share dreams with again in the future. The Sleep Hour Podcast Thank you for joining me today. Our time together is almost at an end. I hope you enjoyed relaxing, listening to five chords together, hearing double-entry bookkeeping explained, and visiting the nearby world of Port Lorenz. The final part of this podcast fades gradually to silence, so I will sign off here, say goodnight, and let our time together ebb gently away. The Sleep Hour podcast is produced in association with the Dream Space Fellowship. I am Ian Seven, the series writer and presenter, additional voice work by Melanie Jane, additional audio production by Tim Stafer and Erica Van Dorn, graphic design by Polyjuice. You can subscribe to receive future episodes using iTunes or the podcasting app of your choice. Copies of the episodes are available on YouTube, accompanied by a simple animation, and you can receive updates by subscribing to the Ian7 YouTube channel. More information, credits and show notes can be found at ian7.uk. That's I-A-N number 7 dot U-K. I hope you can join me for the next episode where I'll be playing a 13th chord, explaining quasi-cylindrical map projections and inviting you to join me on the Calico Coast with its caves of onyx. For now, sleep well, dream deeply, take care and good night.
Part 6 A Connoisseur's Guide to Artisanal White Noise The secret word is emu. This is a small release noise from a traditional soundsmith in the Austrian Alps an hour from Salzburg. It has a strong bass hum that gives it a richer structure than most American noise because it uses the characteristic European 50 Hz instead of the more common 60. A smooth brown noise body reminiscent of underground walkways is topped with low density crackles that add movement and interest without overpowering the blend. This noise is great paired with the semi-silent environment to make the perfect comfortable winter nap. White Noise magazine gave it an 8 out of 10 review in its 2015 European Special Edition, a rating it justly deserves. Enjoy. <laughs> 